out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This time, all the way from California, it's going to be the turn of Ricky Mamie, who I just spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, look, he was in, well, the drummer, guitarist, but was also in um, and the founder member of the Brian Jonestown Massacre, as well as playing with the Wild Swans, the church, uh, did a project with the Triffids and lots of other uh, bands as well that he's performed in. But he'll be telling you all that much later, so I'm not going to bore you. We're just going to get right to the chorus. Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject. The early formative years. Ricky, tell us. Tell us everything. Well, um... I was born in that period. I'm, I was born in 72. And so being a kid in the 70s, you know, I had some older relatives, some uncles who were professional musicians. And they, you know, were around a lot more than my dad was, despite going on tour or whatever. And uh, so, you know, that, that really rubbed off on me and it made an impression and it kind of showed me that there was this way of, you know, sort of living this lifestyle and then being a creative person and you know they were they were happy excitable people you know doing interesting things so it, it came pretty naturally you know from as far back as i can recall you know the desire to to play music and to, and to just be paying attention to music i you know i remember you know david bowie cassettes and things like that around the house when i was sort of three years old and five years old and, and listening to it and, and engaging with it but it wasn't until sort of hitting nine and 10, you know, 81, 82, sort of um, picking up on, you know, MTV when that was coming out and stuff. And so, so you start engaging with music in a whole other way. And so, and at that time, at that age, it's, you know, you're so impressionable, you know, so, um, you know, I was picking up on all the, the weirdo new wave stuff, you know, and I actually was spending time in Hawaii in 81 as a nine year old at my dad's place. And he had this great ginormous, you know, six foot projection TV. And then we, I would just sit there as a kid and watch an MTV, you know, watching ashes to ashes, you know, freaking yes. out, you know, so all that stuff really clicked, you know. Yeah, so were and, your parents quite bohemian? Did you, actually, I missed that bit on. on oh yeah. What were Definitely. they, what was their kind of, cause, cause um, I suppose my parents had been born just before the second world war. So they, they sort of went through that period of, and being in Britain, they were very, we were very poor. You know, it was one of those working class families where you- Sure, no, I get it, yeah. You, you, um, you know, I mean, we didn't, I think when they got married and they sort of had their first house, they kind of sold everything. So, so we didn't have a record player until they got some money together, probably in the early seventies. And I remember the color television appearing in 72 when there was the, I think it was the Olympic Games. They thought, let's get the colour telly. And it was like, fantastic. We can suddenly mm -hmm. see red, blue colours. You know, it's kind of, right. you know, so it's all very organic. You know, it all seemed, obviously, yeah. when you're young, it seems very natural, doesn't it? So your parents, what, sure. so what were your parents kind of? Uh -huh. Well, okay. Um, well, first of all, you know, they were hippies in the 60s. And they, you know, met at a Jimi Hendrix concert in the Fillmore or the Avalon or wherever it was. And they, um, you know, did all the things that people like that would do. He And he was, you know, a Latino from Nicaragua and, you know, hardly spoke a word of English when he got to America. And so they, yeah, were definitely, you know, outsiders in a lot of ways. And he, you know, being a disadvantaged kind of guy, 
um, created advantages for himself in order to get ahead in this dog-eat-dog world. Yeah. And therefore they, uh, yeah, had a pretty colorful existence in their time together and, you know, were involved with a lot of things that, you know, became known down the track in popular culture. Um, so, yeah, all this kind of uh, free thinking and alternative lifestyle and, you know, sort of improvising, slipping through the cracks of existence to do what you have to do to be who you are. That's That's been, you know, in the forefront of my consciousness my entire existence. I've, that's how I've seen... Those were my role models. That's how yes. they were living. So they, they, they went to see Jimi Hendrix, and they were obviously yeah. part of the whole Summer of Love in 1960. Sure, yeah. And were they were they based in California at that stage? Yeah, San Francisco, that's right. So they right, were yeah. right there in the Hyde Ashbury, Grateful Dead. Yeah, and my uncle Vince ended up in the playing in the Grateful Dead. Blimey, that's impressive. Yeah. So you would have probably met, you know... Jerry Garcia and um, sure. Rock Scully and and all the gang. But you know, you, you tend to meet these people in the context of a million other people being around and a gig going on, and so it's not really like you're having a a real genuine kind of interaction. Uh, you know, when you're in that situation, you're kind of uh, confined to the pleasantries of you know just the kind of conversations that always take place in that setting. So. It wasn't like I got to go to a barbecue with him or anything. We were at the, at the Grateful Dead show, you know, where yes. everyone wants to talk to him, Jerry Garcia. So you meet him and it's like, you know, he's meeting everyone every night, right? So. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and but then, but with with any scene, it sort of often, well, often always turns slightly sour. So the sixties, when it finished, you know, it's obviously was a bit of a downer because obviously Jimi Hendrix. Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Die, you know, Woodstock. Though it was kind of, it, it filmed really well, but actually I think from people who went there, it was a bit of a disaster. I think they only organised one toilet and one food store for half a mm -hmm. million people. So it was a bit of a mess. But then, you know, and then a lot of people who I've interviewed from that period sort of dropped quite quickly out of out of it, out of the scene for the 70s. I mean, they didn't sort of re-emerge re until decades later when there was kind of retrospectives on the 60s. But they kind of... Because I spoke to a few of them and asked them why, why, where were they in the 70s? They said, we were just tired. It just, it all went a bit bad at the end. So we just kind of dropped out a bit. And Yeah, yeah it's a bit ahead of my time. But from what I can tell from, you know, talking to a lot of people, I think there was a, a pretty big wave of disillusionment that came along, you know, in the wake of Vietnam and all the rest of it. And people kind of had to go back to the drawing board in some way, you know, to yes. kind of re reinvent or restart something, you know, to have some sense of moving forward. I think people get quite battered when they've been really on the scene. And I, I expect, you know, not only the establishment, but within, as you probably realise, within your own circle of community friends, not everybody, sure. not everyone's always playing quite so pleasantly at times. Yeah, that's why I, I've, I've taken great um, joy in, in not living and having a fixed abode for so long because, you know, you're not sort of, you're not around long enough to, to re relinquish your visitor status. So you get everyone <laughs> on their best behavior, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, he's only here for this long, so we better show him a good time. Yes. But if you're around the whole time, if there's, oh, it's just you again, right? I see you every goddamn day. Yes. <laughs> then the, you kind of everything loses its luster at that point, doesn't it? And there's sort of less emphasis on how uh, special the moments are, on how um, significant time passing is, yes. the time we have, the time we well, share. Well, I mentioned at the start there was this film on the Nightingales and Robert Lloyd and his life in music. And he, when they started, they suddenly got a support act with the uh, Clash, and they thought, "Wow, this is amazing! We're already, you know, we're only 
just got together and we were already supporting the Clash. But they got kicked off the Clash tour quite quickly because they they didn't want to sort of go along with what the management was it was asking them to do. And and Robert in the film says, you know, we were fast tracked to disappointment very quickly. I I saved myself years. I was already disappointed with the being a rock star because I sort of saw punk and the kind of you know Joe Strummer and the Clash up front, you know, close up, and yeah. and um, they weren't what you expected punks to be. They were quite, um, you know, it was like yeah, you know, you're, you, when you see the film, you'll hear the whole story. But oh, I understand. I think I already have a sense of what that story is. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, there's all the disillusionment because everyone's so business minded and upwardly mobile, and you're like, well, hang on a minute, is that what this is really about? Yes, you know? I know. Quite a few people is like you know who did tours with bands, and it's like they couldn't even be in the same venue when the other the main band was you know doing their sound check. You know, it was like, well, we got to go and stand in the street just to while you do yeah. the sound check, and and it just becomes um, another breeding ground for elitism. Yeah. Yes, and we've only got three beers and you've got a fantastic buffet of kind of lovely fine wines and cheeses and we've got sort of a packet of crisps and four cheap, yeah. cheap lines. I'm up here and you're down there. Yeah, I know. It's like, I and you're going to take it and like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So then in the, obviously in the early 80s, there was, a, you mentioned MTV, which was kind of obviously, bizarrely, A Flock of Seagulls was very popular and I really, I didn't know why, but it was because there weren't many videos and they were one of the few bands who made a video and they, so they said, the Sure. The only reason anyone's ever really popular is because the sequence of events that meet a window of opportunity when these windows open and close and, you know, you strike at the right place at the right time. It doesn't matter who you are. You know, it's going to work out. It's all these things just are aligned for people sometimes and you can't count on it. You can plan for it and you might do all right. But some people, it just fucking comes together for them, you know, through whatever reasons. Yes. And that's kind of kind of interesting to to see whether we like the band or the or the phenomenon around it or not. You know, the, the action in in and of itself is is you know notable, and there's a lot to learn from that. Well, it is because I, I remember there was a guy called Richard Strange who was in the Doctors of Madness. <laughs> sure. From the sort of mid seventies, and I did an interview with him, and he said the problem is we were two years too early for punk. Yeah, everybody in the audience, you know, were you know like the punks, and they formed bands and just hit it. And by, you know, though he might have been twenty five, it was like we've kind of missed the boat, haven't we? And and punk, mm -hmm. and we're not quite with it because we're we look a bit too old, and we've been around for two years, and everyone else is just kind of hardly can hardly play an instrument, but they look better, and so we kind of miss that boat. Which he said he wasn't too bothered about it in a way. Well, no, because because the cream rises, you know. I mean, Velvet Underground ahead of their time television ahead of their time it's the same difference you know um you know this, it's great to be ahead of your time but you're going to have to accept the fact that no one's going to get you for a generation yes so um i know and also he said he's kind of relieved because otherwise he would have been stuck having to be a, a punk for the rest of his life whereas actually exactly he could he could do anything and no one was going to say hey wait a minute you can't do that you're a punk he's like, right it's like you know they he, he missed it but then he sort of caught it later on so and he gets kind of critical acclaim so he's happy you know he's he's fine doing his stuff and Kind of laughing at the moment because in the in the eighties, which obviously you were very young, but there was kind of the indie explosion in this country with the people, especially the Smiths. You know, I think the Smiths were a kind of a major band from eighty three to eighty seven. They were there, yeah. and and it was a kind of a game changer. And then they they in in the UK, you know, when they broke up, there was definitely a feeling that things had changed. And then ecstasy came along, and there was like the next generation of eighteen, sixteen, eighteen year olds wanted you know their sound, which was going to be kind of dance orientated like primal scream yeah. and happy mondays and the suit Kills dragons the and all that kind of groovy stuff and and obviously all those other bands 
Yes. <laughs> well, you had, I suppose, in in the, in America, you had glam rock and LA rock, didn't you, with that kind of Bon Jovi? Well, you had it all. You had it. You know, America is the land of consumerism, so you got whatever you want. You just have to know what you're looking for. Yes, this is true. But then, as so, as the as the decade kind of progressed, there was that kind of stuff from four AD, like the Pixies and Throne Muses, and then yeah. obviously we had Bleach, um, you know, which was the the album on the sub pop from Nirvana. And then yeah. eventually it was kind of Seattle and grunge suddenly whacked in. But then there was this shoegazing scene in the UK, which happened when it's a terrible term. But, you know, you had My Bloody Valentine, Silverfish, the, uh, the Faith Healers, Lush, Carter, yeah. the Unstoppable Sex Machine. So there was this kind of undercurrent that was kind of happening as well. But you were the, you obviously at this stage must have started becoming your musical journey must have started to really come together at this point. Well, it started pretty early because by the time I was 10, I was sort of already buying records and stuff and even sort of mindful of, you know, if it was an import or whatever. And then, um, you know, by the time I was sort of 14, which I guess would have been 86, you know, I was pretty up on, I was, you know, I was already collecting enemies and melody makers by that point. And um, so I was pretty up on a lot of that music. And, you know, by the time I was 16 in 1989, I went, and took a trip to England, and I went to the Reading Festival in 89 at 16, and I saw that show, which was, you know, Spaceman 3, House of Love, My Bloody Valentine, Loop, Wonder Stuff, all this stuff, you know, um, it was great. And so that kind of, you know, I guess brought it into a focus, you know, I'd already been listening to all those bands for the previous year or two um, as a teenager in America um, with no, you know, possibility of seeing any of these bands play live in America. And even if they did come, they would be playing somewhere that would be a 21 and over venue. So I was way too young to get into these gigs. You know, you'd hear about these bands and you'd, you'd go stand outside the venue and listen because you were too young to get in. Yes. Sometimes Funny. if you're lucky, someone would sneak you in the back door. I met a lot of bands that way. <laughs> yes. Because they were like, wow, you know my music better than anybody here and you're too young to get in. Fuck that, I'm sneaking you in the back. But that used to happen all the time. <laughs> No, I don't think they were that bothered in the UK, actually, with age limits. And well, it had to be in America because of the, the booze laws, you know. And if, oh. you, if you look under 21 and you don't have an ID, the place is going to lose their liquor license over it. Wow. That, that's what that's about. Yes, well, absolutely. Blimey, yeah. that's, um, yeah, I mean, because the thing what happens in the UK, we, you know, it's a tiny country. You can fit it in, in the book. In your back pocket, basically, you know, it's kind of, and so we had, you know, so a scene can kind of happen incredibly quickly. And in that, that particular period, and also in the 90s, you know, we had those gatekeepers like the, the music papers, the NME weekly sure. as well, you know, NME, Melody Maker, Sounds, and then Record Mirror. Then we had John Peel. And every town and city would have their indie night, you know, from Bristol yep. to Brighton to Norwich to you know Glasgow Manchester so people you know when you're young and you're in that transit van you know you're just going to drive wherever for the, for the next gig even regardless of how impractical it might be um because well because you could you could probably get home anyways after the gig no matter where it is if you live in the midlands no matter where you're playing you can make it home at, after the gig just about you know yeah, unless absolutely. you're going to Cornwall or Scotland you know if, if you if you live in Nottingham and you got a gig in I don't know Hull or you got a gig in bed for sure somewhere you know you can go home afterwards <laughs> absolutely yes i mean the, the the sort of four in the morning unloading your gear 
you know, but it's better than, and it also saves a certain amount of money than staying the night. Well, yeah, you're not renting a bunch of hotels and putting people on PDs and all the rest of it if you just, you know, in and out of there. Yeah. Just taking the money and running. <laughs> Absolutely. So in that, in that, you know, those bands that you mentioned, which were the Wonder Stuff and Pop Will Eat Itself and mm -hmm. the Senseless Things and Ned's Atomic Dust and Dustbin, yeah. there, were, there, was a, there was a real look as well, wasn't there? There was that... Grebo. There was a bit of a, yes, that's the word, Gay Grebo. Bikers on Acid. We loved them, didn't yeah. we? They played too. Yeah, all those Grebo <laughs> bands played. But it was also Loop and Spaceman 3 and House of Love and My Bloody Valentine in the mix with all that Grebo stuff. And the Mission UK headlining and the Sugar Cubes and New Order. It was a good one. That was a pretty good festival. That was Especially definitely... Especially yeah. being 16, first trip to England ever, and seeing the stuff, you know, wow. Yeah. I know, right. there was not a, there was not a, any clean underwear for weeks, was there really? We didn't used to take clean underwear to festivals. Uh, you always knew festivals changed when you could smell um, deodorant, because you thought, God, no one oh, used deodorant. Smell all sorts of things you never smelled before. No, but I think it's quite different now. But, yeah, so, so when did your kind of musical kind of, you know, that was your kind of, um, kind of, spectator moment but when did sort of sure. you, you move into the next world i guess it was fairly immediately after that i mean i was already sort of fooling around in bands anyways you know playing bass and playing guitar playing drums whatever but it became more a more of a even more of a primary focus i guess in my late teens after that first trip and um so by the time i was 18 i was already playing with Brian Jones, Time Massacre, Anton, Travis, we'd started this band. And that went on pretty consistently, um, just gigging around mainly San Francisco, but also down to LA sometimes. And, you know, we always had some new demo on the go on the radio, KUSF, College Radio, whatever. And then Bomp Records picked up on what we were doing and decided to put out some singles and, and then some albums came out. Um, so yeah, that went on from sort of uh, 1990, 91 into late 93. And then by the time that happened, um, Graham Bonner from Swerve Driver, the original drummer from Swerve Driver was living in San Francisco. And some friends of mine uh, were had some house guests staying from England on tour and they rang me up and invited me to come, come have a little party with them. And it turned out to be the faith healers. Oh my God. So, the faith healers. God, they're so amazing. Yeah. And this is 92 and I'm 20 years old, I guess, 19 or 20. And, um, so I'm hanging out with faith healers at my friend's house. And my friend, the man of the house, Andrew is Kiwi, but he was on tour as a guitar tech for my buddy Valentine who also had, you know, been through town a bunch and I'd become friends with and turned out the pay healers were also friends with them. It's all like a circle of friends. So they have the gig the following night. They come along and, you know, but the whole time at the party, I'm talking to Joe Dilworth all night, the drummer from the pay healers, who at the time was also in Stereo Lab. And, you know, he, you know, we got on great and he invited me to come stay. So oh, next time you come to London, et cetera, you know. So the gig happens the following night and I, and I go there and at the end of the night, we're all hanging out. And I look to my right and I see a guy standing there with long hair and big blue eyes and a hat. And I recognize him because I saw him play opening for an atomic dustbin on drums with Swerve Driver just a few months before. And I said, hey, and I knew the drummer from Swerve Driver had, had left the band 
in the midst of a U.S. tour. And here he is standing right next to me. I said, are you, are you Graham Vaughn from Swerve Driver? He's like, yeah, I am. I was like, holy shit. And as it turned out, BJM were just about to go in the studio and make an album, and we were looking for a drummer. And so I said, hey, man, you know, I'd like you to check out my band because we were looking for a drummer, you know, and, and I asked him, like, what are you doing here? Kind of already knowing what he was going to say. Oh, I moved here, you know, and he just sure enough, his answer. So we became pretty good mates, you know, and um, yeah, things just went on from there. We started a side project and then that became the primary focus, you know, over time. Wow. That's quite amazing. That's quite yeah. A- that that's a lot of people you managed to get to see very quickly. So at that yeah. stage, so at that stage you were still doing drums. Uh, no, I, at that stage I was playing bass. Right. I started as a drummer, then I moved to guitar, then I moved to bass. Or no, yeah, that's right, that's right. And now I'm on guitar again after Blimey. rejoining. So I was I was I had time away from the band. You know, at the time, you know, we just it was time to move on. You know, we, we were young, we were growing, we were developing, and our interests were all over the place and. You know, we were we were trying to find our way and figure it out, and you know, things were developing the way they were, and it was clearly turning into, um, you know, our leader's band, and and so it felt appropriate to, to not be in the way of allowing that to be the case, you know. So we moved on and found ourselves doing another project that sort of, you know, fizzled out at the time for whatever reasons. Basically, Travis, um, who also was in Brian Jones Town, was also in part of this project. I had moved away, you know, he, he got married, you know, he had a young girlfriend, his own age at the time, 21. And, you know, as things can happen, they were about to become parents. So he moved away. And, and so that kind of got shelved for a while. And, you know, from that point, you know, Graham ended up moving back to the UK and, and Tim and I, you know, Tim, the other guy, he did a project called Tipsy. And I was playing drums for a bunch of bands around town, a band called Room, a band called Panda, a band called Del Vellum. All these bands did, you know, seven inches or EPs or whatever, even cassette demo EPs. Because still the 90s, you know, no one even had a CD burner yet. <laughs> oh, absolutely. This is true. Right. So, um, yeah. And all the while, you know, Anton was just knocking him dead left and right doing his thing you know and so he which was great you know he was banging out two records a year pretty regularly it seemed and you know really uh finding an audience and resonating with with a a large group of people and that was you know nothing to sniff at that's it was compelling and you know really great to see so um yeah and in in the meantime i you know i was in college and I was taking, you know, music classes. I was doing electronic music lab and I was um, doing counterpoint, advanced counterpoint harmony. And I was doing all the humanities and I was doing anthropology and life science, everything, you know, but I was also doing, you know, creative writing and I was doing political science and just anything to keep me occupied and busy in school, but also, you know, musically focused, Um, working on music still. We did another Imaginary Friends record, which ended up becoming a, a split release with Spectrum, Sonic Boom from Spaceman 3, who at the time, uh, we were very close. We were like best friends from 95 to 99, no, no, 95 to 2001, 2002, thereabouts. Um, until we went on tour together, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, but I wish him well. Yes. And so, yeah, you know, 
we're all just people, right? <laughs> so <laughs> absolutely, because I did. I've done a, a, an interview with both with Anton Bazzali, no, not not uh-huh. Bazzali. Yeah. I mean, God, you know, you got to get to Brian Jones down, and also a guy called Sterling. Is it Roswell who was in? Yeah, Roscoe. Yeah, Roscoe. That's it. Yeah, card. That sounds a pretty. I mean, from from from. Um, you know, like there was a lot of indie bands in the eighties. I mean, they weren't kind of quite such heavy, such a heavy scene. Whereas the nineties did seem quite a bit more kind of heavy in in a lot of ways. I mean, basically drugs, wasn't it? It sounded a bit more of an intense nihilistic quality. Whereas, you well, know, it's also it's more than drugs because drugs are always in the picture. I think what it really is is imbalance. I think there's a little too much of what people uh, identify as success coming the way of people who hadn't quite earned it yet you know what i mean and it's like too much too soon and it spoils a lot of bands and it 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 derails them whether you know creatively or otherwise you know personally um you know it's too much too soon and i think there's such thing as too much success i think you know it it spoils a lot of bands and it's it's a balance it's like a ph balance too much of any one thing is going to throw the whole thing off right so you want to get the balance right just like Depeche Mode, right? <laughs> you well, absolutely. And, al- and, and also, it's interesting that some bands have that longevity and others just don't. You know, I, mean, I obviously- think that's, what, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's how you wreck your longevity. It's, if you're overexposed, if you're rammed down everyone's throat, if you're overplayed and people can't get away from you because the marketing campaign's relentless, that'll be your undoing. Yes. Who the it- fuck wants to hear a U2 record? <laughs> that's why. I know. Basically. That's essentially the reason why no one wants to hear a, this multi-million selling band. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a long list of them, you know? That's just the first pick off the top of my head. But it's but interesting. That's where it goes. If you're R.E.M., if you're The Cure, if you're, you know, whoever, the Morrissey, that's where it all ends up. It does end up. It does Unfortunately. But with those bands, most of them, well, I don't know about Depeche Mode, but I suppose you too did spend a few years not sort of going completely massive until the Joshua Tree whereas with your band it kind of got a lot of exposure very quickly didn't it well I wouldn't say that myself if you look at the history you mean the Brian Jonestown massacre right yeah um I think you know first of all when that band started it was like 1990 very end of 1990 into 91 it was sort of that winter and um that was in a climate of, you know, major labels, even with offices in San Francisco, they had their A&R offices there. They were everywhere. They were in Seattle. They're in Portland. They're in San Francisco. They're in every city. Every city has the record companies, right? We, uh, Warner, Electra, Asylum, they've all got their offices. They've all got their reps. They've all got their thing going on, their scouts, whatever it is. They're throwing around and wasting so much money, having their parties, whatever it is they're doing. Right. And, um, you know, so there's so, you know, the, the mission from what how I understand it is, okay, A&R guy, it's your job to go out and sign 13 bands and we're going to put out a record by between one and three of them, <laughs> right? Even though we're going to own all the rest of the bands and we're going to totally control them if they sign the deal we want them to sign, right? So this is all some sort of plan to just i guess squirrel money away in some sort of tax shelter i don't understand it i play guitar but you know 
so you get all these bands around you. You're in this climate of all these gigs are going on. Here's these bands. And this band over here, they're signed to Island Records. And that band over there, they're signed to Geffen Records. And that band, none of these bands you've ever heard of, because none of them have a record out, but they're all signed to a major label. And they all sort of behave as such. So you're in this climate of dudes with <laughs> big record deals, <laughs> or, you know, ready to just wake up famous any day now, right? Yes. Be the next to you too, because there's nothing suggesting that they won't be, really. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they're young and dumb and inexperienced and on island records, right? And it's 1990, and they're living in an apartment, having their rent paid by the label, whatever, right? So they kind of, they're kind of duped into this, you're a rock star now thing, and, but they're not anybody, right? But they've got an attitude, and, you know, so it's, you kinda, you're kind of up against this. So we were sort of, we were nobodies because we couldn't say we were signed to Geffen or Island or, you know, Sire, whatever. You know, we couldn't say that. We were, we were just these sort of upstarts playing two chord songs, three chord songs. What do you think you guys are, Spaceman 3? How come your singer sounds like Robert Smith, man? You know, well, you know, why do we have to answer to these motherfuckers who think he's going to be the next Bono tomorrow morning or whatever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Is this a stupid way to have to go about it, right? And you know, you're still dealing with all the, you know, the Jane's Diction and Red Hot Chili Peppers wannabe bands, you know, white guys with dreads and all this shit. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> stupid, you know. And they're yeah, they're signed to Interscope Records, right? Okay, great. These guys are the rock stars in in the waiting in the wings. Cool, man. Great. Yeah. So um, so this is the this is the environment you're in right as a teenager in a band you know with your 300 dollar harmony rocket you know playing you know some sort of velvet underground kind of thing through a quadriverb so it sounds a little more like you know echo and the bunny men or something <laughs> you know and so we weren't impressive at all to anyone however what people couldn't really sniff at was every fucking time we played a gig there were hundreds of people there so obviously we were doing something right because we were able to get wherever we played, the room was full and we, you know, there were reasons for that. You know, we, we, we kind of knew how to promote ourselves and knew how to get people's attention, you know, with weird ass flyers or, or whatever, taking over billboards and turning it into a poster for a concert or whatever, you know, um, and getting people on our side, you know, people, from the art schools, you know, and saying, hey, why don't you bring your slide projectors and your, and your movie projectors and just set up and just show a bunch of weird ass shit while we're playing, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you just put up a flyer out of art school saying that or whatever, or if you tell people spread the word, you're talking to someone, you get these ideas going one night at a party or whatever. Next thing you know, you got 15 kids from San Francisco Art Institute turning up with their projectors and slide projectors, all the rest of it, right? So you have this sort of, you know, immersion experience happening. And then between bands, you've got Ravi Shankar cranking through the sound, through the quadriverb, through the sound system, you know, and you're sort of creating this experience, you know, these young people, art school students, people into bands, whatever. It's this collection of weirdos, you know, people hanging out in the Haight-Ashbury, whatever, you know, because, I mean, we were always hanging out in the Haight-Ashbury and the cafes all day. And also you must have been a great counterpoint to those kind of the kind of the post not the post grunge bands but the bands like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and um, Well I think that was the problem was that we were getting away with not having to you know pose in that in that manner you know and we were actually able to get people genuinely excited about what we were doing without having to you know 
go through those motions or jump through those hoops or, you know, dress like Perry Farrell or whatever. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's, it's very obvious now because when I sort of see those clips of, you know, like 90, early 90s kind of grunge bands, it is kind of like, my God, they all not only sound the same, they all kind of look the same. They've all got the same man mannerisms. The, yeah, the bass player's getting... got sort of cut-off jeans and is jumping mm -hmm. around with dreadlocks and the guitarist is swinging a kind of Jack Daniels and is trying to look like he's drunk and talking about his relationship with his stepdad in some small town American village. Right. You know, it, it was like, my God, they did, they, they did tick all the boxes and in such a cliche for, you know, two or three yeah. years. That's what was being thrust down everyone's throat, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Real cookie cutter stuff. Yes. Very. So, yeah. So that's, that's the, what you always want to avoid, you know, I, I reckon in whatever you're doing, that's, that's it. Bad thing. Yeah, absolutely. So when you, because you did two albums, didn't you, with um, Brian Jones? Concert. Well, the way it worked was, we, you know, we, we were, I guess, yeah, we did two albums. But what was really happening was we were, we were doing, we just had concurrent ongoing sessions in different studios. We'd sort of be in one studio making an album and then go to another studio and make whatever it was we were making, whether it was a single or, or just or just an idea or whatever. And some of that stuff got cobbled into an album. So I'm not on all of that stuff on, on either of those albums because right. that, you know, at one point, you know, that, that was, I guess, the process, you know, just you, you record as many songs as you can, you know, get down as many songs as you can. And then you, you just sort of go with what's going, you know, Oh, well I've got 10 songs over here and these three are really happening. So I'm going to take these three. What songs have I got over here? Oh, I got eight songs over here. Oh, I really like those two. Oh, I've got these three and those two. Cool. That's five. Now oh, over here, I've got these sessions and that's very sort of standard way. Um, I think a lot of things have gone with yes. Anton. You know, he's just got a lot of things going on at the same time, which is great. You know, well, yes, absolutely. When you're on, when, when you're on the case, you need to keep going. Yeah. So then yeah, it's kind of unstoppable. I mean, you know, once he's once he's on a roll, it's he's, <laughs> it's, just, it's really a sight to behold. And there's some people who are who are really great with that. You know, he's really he's on fire, especially lately. He's really been on fire. I don't know if you've been paying attention to him lately at all, but he's he's cranked out like sixty some odd songs no exaggeration and they're all pretty great in their own way you know they've all got different things going on and and it's all very recognizable as him but it's really got he's really opening up some new dimensions in his songwriting style and it's really it's, you know it's it's that's a pleasant surprise it's, yes it's well really I did, cool i did track him yeah. down in berlin a couple well a year ago and and that was quite amazing how much he'd been releasing and recording and still recording for the next Mm. Well, the last five, ten years, and then he's kind of got a lot of projects on, I think. Yeah. I can't remember. Yes, anyway, I think he's had a lot of, I think he's kind of, I can't remember, actually, it was a long time ago. I can't remember whether he's just got a child or was having a child or what. He's got a little boy. Yeah, we both have small children. Right. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I suppose that would have uh, settled him. So was it a big thing when you were no longer, like, part of that band, and it was the mid-90s, I think, and then you were... Uh, having to sort of find the next place. Because often, you know, when I spoke to people who, you know, when they're no longer in the band, often the band doesn't exist anymore. It's a bit of a strange period. How did you cope with that next phase? Well, I was still pretty young. So I still, I felt like I still had a lot of things to figure out in life. And, you know, um, also, I just, I just, for whatever reasons, you know, you know, people drift apart. And sometimes that's healthy, I think, because when, if, you, if you're able to come back, 
and sort of put what you've learned in your in your absence to to use and sort of find a way to bring that to the table you know then it's all worth it you know then it's like oh wow okay well i haven't really been so engaged with this person but now they're in my in my loop or they're in my orbit and and now we have new information to exchange and share and benefit from whatever you know on whatever level whatever personal level you know i mean there's always been the the friendship there you know even in, in the time apart you know you still have this sense of connection you know and even it's even very familial as well because in that way of like even if you're sort of like feeling a little grumpy about the person or whatever you, you still never lose sight that this person is a very significant important person in your life and you care about them and all the rest of it you know so you know in in that absence we were still very much in one another's loop you know yes. um, there would have been an initial period of you know requiring space what have you but it, it ultimately it's it's not very long a few months you know and you know you're young you know you're you're hot-headed and you're you know figuring it all out you know, yeah. so. but then so so what then where do you then head for the next direction and i know you said you were young but then from that band that you know is yeah well okay so from there you know um hanging out with ram and hanging out with joe and faith healers and you know checking out all the stuff they were turning us on to, you know, they were turning us on to Mercury Rev and they were turning us on to, you know, all this wild shit, you know, and it, and, it, and it was sort of definitely like a bit of a sign in the road, like, okay, wow, here's something way more far out. And so we were thinking, okay, how can, what do we, what can we do? How do we just get way far out? Right. So we just wanted to be as far out as we could. So, um, I don't know if we were successful is another matter entirely, but we made a, a record that was all, uh, just, spontaneous you know we, we went in with no songs and we just started playing and that was that you know what happened in a day <clears throat> was what came out on a cd what was that project called imaginary friends oh of course yeah yes yeah. anyhow um so that happened and that, with travis and then we did the other one you know, and it was graham as well and tim tagula and tim and travis and myself still operate as that project yeah. um we did a record that came out i guess two three four years ago four years ago we had an album out um yeah just called the imaginary friends and it it came out very small pressing um in america 300 copies in europe 300 copies uh there was a french edition without wood wooden hand screened cover of edition of i think 50 copies or something so a small small running so you know but that's fine um we were surprised anyone even wanted to put it out to be honest with you so, <laughs> so there you go but it does have um some guest musicians who make it quite um compelling i think we have got steven from the telescopes on there uh doing a really lovely sort of um chanting kind of sound like almost like a tuvan sound you know and it, sort of beaming in from outer space over top this this droning pulsing throbbing track called hate this party <laughs> and then um there's another track called baby's Bathwater that has um marlene nilsson from death and vanilla uh their swedish band really great yeah. um, and she did a vocal on that piece and really just 
made it so much, I don't know, more engaging, you know? Um, so yeah, I think what, I think the, what really makes that record work is, is the guest vocalists. And then of course there's um, another one, uh, Moogie, who is a French singer, which is Belgian actually, but she sings in French. She lives in Australia. Um, and she's performed with Brian Jones time asker, uh, on occasion. She did a tour of Europe with us uh, a couple of years ago. And she sings a song on that album too, called Les Outsiders, which is the first track on the album. Fantastic. Yeah. So how did you, because you've got quite the CV, haven't you? A phenomenal CV. How did you sort of, because I mentioned at the beginning, you know, um, Paul Simpson from The Wild Swans. So you, did you mm. collaborate on an album or just a few tracks with him? Oh, no, we made a whole album together. And we've, we actually just made another one that's not out yet. Um, but I'll get to that. Okay, so Paul, um, all right, back to the mid-90s. I was, you know, spending a lot of time in England, in rugby, in Warwickshire, living with Sonic Boom and his missus and hanging out and going around places and hitting, hitting car boot sales and hanging around with Delia Derbyshire, you know, fooling around with modular synths and circuit bent Casios and Texas Instruments toys and sniffing snuff and drinking homemade wine and all this kind of cool stuff, you know. Um, and in that time, I got to know a lot of Pete's friends, and one of which was um, a guy named Dave Battersby, who went by the name Talbot. And at the time, he had a label called Ochre Records, O-C-H-R-E. And he was putting out records by Experimental Audio Research, Sonic's project, and he was putting out um, Skyray, which is Paul Simpson. Right. So Paul Simpson came onto my radar through Skyray, his ambient project, through this label, through the connection with Pete. And so Skyray was having an album release on Space Age Recordings, which was the label that was doing that Imaginary Friends release at the time. And they were sort of released on the same day thing. So, you know, we were on each other's radar. And, you know, so, we, you know, I was hearing about this person in conversation with from people like Talbot and people like Pete. And, and then I was sort of working out who he was. And, um, you know, I was taking a real interest in his music. And we were introduced online back in 2001, or whatever it was, by Talbot, by Dave from Ochre. And we started talking. And just built up a bit of a rapport with one another as, you know, a fan, whatever, you know, I, I find this work really um, strikingly beautiful. I mean, I couldn't stop listening to it, you know, and I, I already was a fan of what I'd heard by the wild swans in the eighties on the radio in San Francisco, but I hadn't quite made the connection that that's who he even was. And then we were talking and he said he was, he was looking at putting that back together, resurrecting that project. And he asked me, he said, you know, would you be interested in doing this? And I was a bit surprised that he asked me that, to be honest, because, you know, being from California and, and all that, it seemed like a pretty far out idea. But, yeah. um, but it didn't seem that far out to him. And that right there was sort of enough for me, you know, um, because some, sometimes these ideas that seem like far out ideas are, are ideas you kind of have to follow up. And a lot of the things I, I've done I've done over the years really meet that description. So, um, okay. So, you know, Brian Jones Channel on tour, we're in Liverpool one day and, um, Michael Mooney, 
guitar player from Liverpool. He um, had just moved back to Liverpool after many years living in Bristol because he had been playing in Spiritualized all through the ladies and gentlemen period leading up to the live at Royal Albert Hall record. So he was doing all those gigs, you know, Glastonbury 98 and all that stuff. And this was all off the back of him playing with Julian Cope and, you know, all these, all these bands. He's got a long list of people you've heard of that he's played <laughs> with. And he's a lovely guy. You know, he and I became you know, good mates. And, and on the same visit to Liverpool that I'd arranged to meet Paul to talk about this, Michael and I had also been in touch about meeting and I knew that there was, there had to be some connection between them because they're both from Liverpool. They're both from the same scene. They've worked with a lot of the same people. And so, you know, we had this idea, Oh, maybe we can all do this together and maybe we get Michael into this as well. And, and so he was up for it and which was great. And so Michael and Paul and myself would spend time going, <clears throat> excuse me, to Henry Priestman's, um, studio out in Anglesey and doing work there. We, we built up what became the coldest winter for a hundred years there. And so we got about, I don't know what it was, eight or 10 songs going. And we'd done a little bit of riding together at Paul's place in his lounge. And um, then uh, we, we took it into Par Street Studios in Liverpool. And um, that's when we started working with a drummer, Steve Besick, who's uh, uh, from Northampton. He's played in a lot of bands. I think he plays with uh, the June Brides these days, but he was with Slipstream and he was with... Oh, the um, Heartthrobs. Uh, yes, he was with the Heartthrobs. That's right. And he was with... Uh, he and I played together in Three Love Babies, Will Carruthers' band from Spaceman 3, Spiritualized. Anyhow, so it's all connected. So um, anyhow, yeah, so we, we finished that record in, in Liverpool, in Par Street, and it came out in... 2011 we did a uk tour and we did a, a couple shows in the philippines um yeah um and we did a couple singles you know all this we you know we had the album out and, yeah. yeah it was great it's an amazing so, album actually isn't it it's a beautiful album but it's quite hard to get hold of i think yeah that's a shame i guess there, there weren't very many copies pressed up you know it's supply and demand and you know distribution all these things you know you have to Again, the stars have to be aligned and the agreements have to be made and all this stuff. It's just a fucking <laughs> it's all it's all the no fun stuff. Yes. And, you know, because you mentioned how um, was it Henry Priestman as well? Because, yeah. uh, yes, yeah, so I did an interview with him and he was in the yachts and also very early. It's in material who were from Liverpool, weren't they? And the Christians. The yeah, Christians. Well, and he it. also did a lot of work with Ian McCulloch's solo stuff early on. And he also worked with the Bunny Man on the Lips Like Sugar record, I believe. And he. Yeah, he's you know he's he's from Hull, but he's kind of a Liverpool guy anymore yes. you know, for many years, and you know Anglesey's not that far away. So, um, and was that was that a good vibe on that particular album with the Wild Swans? Did it sort of feel like a good project? Well, yeah, you know it's it's a little frustrating because time time was always sort of of the essence, you know, because you know people are coming in from different places, and you know. I was coming from California and, you know, Mike was busy being a dad and working a job and, you know, and then we have to come up with the money to get in the studio. And so there's all these factors that kind of 
break the flow and make it, you know, a less than optimal scenario. You know, you don't get to kind of stretch out with material or, or really have that sense of taking time with things that you might like to have yes. when you're, you know, when there's, when there's a bit riding on a record like that, you know, you're a band with a reputation from the eighties. You haven't made a record in years. People are waiting to hear something. You want it to be good. You know, you want it to really, you know, ideally be the best record ever made by this band. You know, if you, you know, you got to try, right. You got to at least, Rather than feel like, well, no matter what we do, it's not going to live up to the classic stuff. You know, that's kind of the, not putting your best foot forward, I reckon. You know, you have to try to at least punch above your weight. So, you know, we, you know, I think with Paul, he really wanted to feel like he, he was making the best record he ever made. And I think that's fair enough to want to feel like that. Yeah. You know? well, no, well, no matter who you are, but certainly under his circumstances. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, you know. I used to be quite into sport and you're only as good as your next game really and I suppose as a musician you must feel like it's only your next album that's gonna well they say you're only as I think it's only as good as your last game right <laughs> so yeah so because your new thing is the last thing tomorrow or the yes, next day right so <laughs> yeah you can't wait I mean you know because actually what I've heard of that album is so beautiful you know it's a really nice work you know it's um, amazing yeah well we tried and you know we were lucky to work with some talented people um you know, Rich Turvey is a really fantastic pianist. And, you know, that you can't underestimate the value of having a really great pianist on, on, on hand, you know, because they can, they can create, they can bring the emotion out of a simple chord progression, you know, with just whatever little subtle inversions, you know, ways to evoke the emotion. So, you know, you, you want to, make people feel what they're experiencing you know rather than just have it breeze right past them as static chords you know so you have to really get a lot of feel and emotion and, and really kind of somehow create an audio image that it just engages the listener and yeah. Yeah, has a reaction uh, some kind of emotional response of some kind you know because one of the other bands from the 80s that we all love um, was was the Triffids, and you obviously uh, must have had quite a connection because you you performed together, yeah. didn't you, in the um, yeah. in one of those kind of tribute concerts for um, yeah, we did quite a few of them together actually. Um, let's see. So um, my son is, is from Perth. <clears throat> His mother's from there, and she was living in California, and I met her in two thousand and one, and at that time I was also very focused on music from where she happened to be from. And um, so I got into them at that time. You know, I wasn't really aware of the Triffids until a few years after David McComb's passing. And, um, you know, she was making me aware of them and some other friends I had around town, you know, who were from the Southern Hemisphere where I had yet to visit. And um, so I got down there for the first time with her and I was on tour with Brian Jonestown Massacre. We were spending time with Steve Kilby from the church on the beach out in Bondi. And um, I started uh, participating online in the Triffids forums and uh, you know getting involved in discussion. And um, I let Graham Lee know that uh, we were playing Born Sandy Devotional every night before our gigs on tour, you know, around America and around Europe and stuff. And yeah, I guess, you know, it wasn't the most common thing to hear that you got some American band playing this record, you know, 
on tour in 2006 yeah five and six seven whatever so we you know we 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 struck up a bit of a connection online and um Bootsy and I were taking another trip to Australia we went to Melbourne and uh you know so Graham Lee and I had arranged you know well you come come to town to meet have a coffee you know so we went we met and had a coffee we had a really nice chat got on really great and um so I just met him as a fan you know which is how I meet most people I know I'm just a fan of music, you know, and that's all I ever was. That's all I'll ever really be, which is fine. So uh, I'm hanging out with Graham, Felicity, we're having a great time. And he says, you know, we're, hey, look, we're, we're looking at having, we've been approached about doing a tribute concert to David McComb, the memory of David McComb. We're going to have people, guest vocalists, you know, sing the songs and guest musicians. And um, so, you know, he mentioned he had mentioned this to me. And so I thought um, to myself, oh, you know, I better um, sort of pencil that in, you know, because to, to me, I was thinking, you know, I, I would like to see that. Um, and it was sort of, you know, implied that there was a possibility to play. And then fast forward, however many months, maybe 12 months, a year thereabouts, I was back in Sydney and I was at Steve Kilby's house. And we were making our, a record together, the David Neal record. And he was on the phone with Graham Lee <clears throat> talking about this because they asked him, excuse me, to be one of the guest vocalists. And um, so you know, he was discussing that with them. And, and he suggested, oh, you should also get Ricky to play. So I think because Graham, it had already occurred to Graham and then he'd heard it again from Steve. Graham thought, yeah, okay. So I was... I was then approached about it and, you know, I was a bit beside myself, but I agreed to it straight away, you know, and I'm so glad that I um, mustered up enough confidence to do so because I'm so in awe of this band, you know, they're like no other band. So, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, and so, um, Gramley just said, yeah, great. Well, come meet us tomorrow at the Sydney Conservatorium for rehearsal, you know? Yeah, okay. So I came in, met everybody. Everybody was really lovely and gentle. And, you know, it was just like a dream, you know? Wow, I couldn't believe it, you know? So um, next thing you know, we're rehearsing at the Metro Theatre in Sydney downtown where the gigs were. We played four nights in a row, sold out, 1,000 capacity, three and a half hour concert. So we spent the, the seven days leading up to these four days rehearsing every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., I believe it was. It was like a 12 hour rehearsal with a lunch break and a dinner break, you know. So, you know, and in that time, I mean, this is the first time a lot of them had, had spent this kind of time together making music and going over these songs again, going over the memories again. So it was an, it was an in, intensely, um, you know, uh, cathartic experience, I think, you know, I mean, we were, we were crying every night at the end of the show, you know, the audience and people on stage, everybody, it was just such a, a, a process, an emotional process, this whole thing, you know, um, a powerful experience. And I, you know, we all through that, I think there was no way to come out of that without feeling a bond, you know? And so I felt quite connected to everyone involved, 
you know, and it was, and it was a really powerful experience and I've never really had another one like it, you know, it's like the last waltz kind of thing, you know, it's the, this whole musical interaction and, and so much emotion involved. It's all around based on the memory of someone, you know, we're playing this song. It's a very intense experience. Yes. Well, absolutely. And lyrics, because I did an interview, I think it was with his brother and he did mention that. I remember that those concerts, because obviously it's a kind of a big thing and you don't, you have to allow a certain amount of time to pass to cope with the, pro, you know, just the idea of being asked because, because I expect yeah. before that you'd have said no before even drawing breath or even thinking and then thinking, also, about, you know, that might be quite a nice idea, but then this could be a good idea or it could just be one of the worst. It's, you know? it, yeah. It's, there, there's an art to this. It's like, how do we do this? And, and, and do it in an honorable, tasteful manner that we can feel good about it. Because, you know, they're not, they're not a typical band, you know, apart from Marty being in the bad seeds, the rest of them, they are just not the kind of people who are, you know, looking for how they're going to, you know, stay in the music business game. It's just not what they're interested in and more power to them. You know, they've all got, you know, um, careers and jobs that they really love and family lives, you know, they have, you know, they've got great lives. They don't need it that kind of struggle at all and the only reason they ever did it was because dave asked them to and dave's not around anymore so it's like without dave asking me to do it why the fuck am i doing it you know it's, they got to come to terms with that before they agree to anything you know what i mean it's, yes absolutely because um yeah just... so what was the song that you covered of theirs by the way or you sung on oh i wasn't singing ah oh. i was just part of the house band you know i was just playing guitar pretty much the whole time. I did play drums in one song, but, um, and another song I was just sort of doing drones and stuff. One song I did some backing vocals, but no, I actually, I actually did um, try out a couple songs, but I kind of lost confidence and they were quite encouraging, but I just backed away. Um, you know, but they're so easygoing. I'm sure if I had made a real mission out of it, I probably could have found myself on, but I was quite happy just playing guitar, you know, because Actually, for all the extra guitar players that were around, there were actually quite a few parts that needed to be played. <laughs> you know, even if, no matter how subtle or little, but it, so it was a very orchestrative approach. You know, sometimes you'd have four guitar players up there, and it might look crazy, but it, we all found a, kind of found a way to make it make sense out of it. You know, well he's playing acoustic, well he's playing slide, well he's going to play the clean part, he's going to play the dirty part, he's playing rhythm, he's playing lead, he's going to play the other lead. He's you know, so before you know it, okay, now it suddenly makes sense. We've got all these people up here. Yeah, because we can really bring this to life. Every little subtle nuance. How many times have you gone to see a band live and they're great, but it's not quite like hearing the record, you know, because all those things aren't there because there's only so many of them. Well, we didn't have that problem. Any sound <laughs> that needed to be created, there was someone on hand to do it. You know, so it was pretty cool, actually. Yes, absolutely. Mm. God, that's mm. amazing. So then, I mean, God, it's hard to because your career is so kind of unbelievable isn't it in the sense of so many projects you've had to work on as well as you know being on bands you've also done production work with loads of bands as well so obviously you know how do you sort of manage to pick through all that you know and keep it together while sort of maintaining a sort of personal personal life with relationships and family and stuff like that i'm still trying to find the answer to that question myself but you know everything's kind of an organic process for me it seems when i look at it it's just, you know, kind of like, you know, a vampire has to be invited in, you know, I don't really do anything I'm not asked to do. You know, I'm not kind of actively out there looking, saying, hey, you better get me to produce your record. I'm not really that guy, you know, I'm 
I'm sort of, you know, I'm around and people say, hey, I'm working on this thing and you came to mind. And I think, well, if I came to mind, well, maybe I better check that out, you know. Uh, you know, you, you, your intuition will tell you, like, okay, this, this makes sense. Or, you know, for me, usually, if I sometimes like someone will play me their idea, and straight away, you know, I can without any effort, I, if I see it in my mind's eye, the sort of finished product, then I'm like, yeah, okay, let's do this because I can see it already. You know, if I'm struggling to see it. I'm probably not going to say, oh, yeah, let's do it. I'll probably just go, hmm, I don't know, and then change the subject. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So what what are you kind of working on? Because it's such a strange time at the moment, you know, last year. I mean, how has that affected your creativity? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Well, yeah, it really really makes you stop and ask yourself uh, some pretty heavy questions, you know. But um, let's see. In this time, I already had some things on the go, just uh, pertaining to uh, reissuing some work, uh, some of mine and some of an uncle of mine, um, his work. So that's actually happening now. That just happened. So I guess people are already getting copies of, of that record. Which is his name's Ed Dorn. The other uncle's Vince Welnick. He was in the Tubes, Todd Rundgren's band, and the Grateful Dead. Oh. But this uncle is Ed Dorn, and he was in Zolar X and this band called the Push-Ups, who they were called Aurora Push-Ups at first, and then they changed to Push-Ups. So anyhow, they were doing singles in the late 70s, early 80s in San Francisco, and they were on the sort of Mabuhe Gardens scene. They actually have a track on a John Savage California punk comp that came out a few years back. But anyhow, they did a couple seven inches that are now like, you know, $100 seven inches if you can find them kind of thing. And they had a bunch of reels of other tracks that were unreleased. So I, you know, with some help from my mother, you know, got these tapes and got them baked and got them mastered and got them into the hands of a label that saw the sense in doing this. So they're doing it and they've done it. It's done now. And um, I'm just waiting on my copies to arrive, actually. Um, so, yes, yeah, so th- I've been focused on that, just sort of archiving his material for posterity purposes. <laughs> and then also I play in a band or I played in a band called Mellow Drunk. And we did some records in the O's, the 2000 O's. And um, one of them got reissued in 2020. And so, you know, it, it, these the you have to oversee the details. It, it's it's a timely process, uh, you know, time-consuming process. So this record came out when it what was this, maybe June or July of this past year, or maybe maybe a little before that, April or May of 2020. Yeah. So um, yeah, I've just been overseeing this stuff, and you know, I've got another few, couple things like that up my sleeve, and um, also been recording music for um, some of Anton's songs. I had some songs sent my way. So I've overdubbed some tracks to that stuff. Um, he'll either use them or he won't. Hopefully he does. Um, yeah, but it was a good uh, reason to put together a home studio so I can do that kind of work. Um, Cause I haven't really had the time to do anything like that up until the pandemic hit because I'm usually, you know, out and about, you know, an intrepid type. I'm usually in Australia or China or England or somewhere other than here and bouncing around, ping-ponging around, you know, gigging with those guys, recording with these guys, whatever, you know, writing. Um, Lots of different projects on the go all the time. There's always something new happening. There's always something just around the corner, just beyond the horizon coming up. Lots of things always. Um, And I'm so 
glad, you know, and even, even in this time, it seems like there's, there's some things <clears throat> hovering on the horizon. So that's good, you know. Yeah. Well, um, I, was talking, I was talking to that, um, he was in Jellyfish called Jason Faulkner. Yeah, he's a nice guy. And he was just saying that, um, you know, he's, he's sort of set up a home studio. He's just sort of doing bits for different bands, I think, mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. bass lines with Sinead O'Connor. And, and Paul whatever. McCartney. <laughs> yes, all that kind of thing. Yes, I know. Right. But he's, uh, yeah, so you're, you're sort of in a similar kind of world of kind of being there, collaborating, working with people, delivering yeah. sort of things when people say, oh, could you, you know, would you be able to work on this for me? Yeah, I, and again, I'm, I'm I'm open to it if I can see it for myself. You know, the sense of it. You know, um, if if it feels like I'm fitting a square peg into a round hole, then maybe I, I might not be as quick to jump on something. I don't know. I mean, it's just to keep myself occupied more than anything else at this point. Really, you know, just to feel some sense of being productive. You know, meeting some higher purpose or whatever. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So can then, you hang on. Yeah, can you hang sure. On one moment, please. Okay. Sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah. So, so just lastly, did you say you've got you've got an album with the Wild Swans that is kind of coming out soon, or did I yes? Know? Well, it's I don't I don't know that it's coming out soon, but the backing tracks are completely finished. Mm-hmm. Um, we did that in Liverpool. Um, when did we do that? We did that in November, November of 2019. We recorded it. At elevator studios which is uh, one of the guys from the river city people his studio and um i don't know if you know them they're a cool band uh anyhow so yeah we did that and we did this one with edgar jones on bass from the steps okay or this at the stairs sorry and um he's played with all sorts of people and um he's a fantastic musician my god so great um and of course marty wilson piper of, uh, you know, the church, All About Eve, those bands. He uh, brought a lot to it. Um, a lot of guitars <laughs> and played some fantastic stuff. So he's a big part of this. They're both a huge part of this record that we, you know, we all worked on together for Paul, Paul's songs. And we, you know, just worked out arrangements and parts and, you know, same pretty true to his ideas. You know, Paul's really good at kind of, coming up with basically the whole thing you know but he he likes people to sort of you know bring their own thing to it you know in, in just the right kind of way so i'm thinking we did 12 maybe more songs 14 and all sounding great and Stuart mann playing drums who did the tours with us the uk and the philippines tours and he also did the same bjm tour that Mui, the french singer did He's he's quite a great musician. Um, he came in and did the drums for this new Wild Swans record. So it's Stuart Mann on drums, Edgar Jones on bass, Marty Wilson Piper on guitar, myself on guitar, and Henry Priestman doing some keyboards, and Rich Turley doing some keyboards, and Paul 
Um, I don't know if he's already began doing the vocals, but right. that's really all that's left. And, you know, yeah. That's going to be with amazing. Paul, yeah. With Paul, you know, it's, it's just, it, it's, he just, it happens when it happens and that's great. You know, that's as, as it should be, I think. So that's fine. Fantastic. Yeah. So look, it'll, it'll happen when the time's right. God, I hope it's soon. God, we need something. We need Me too. Something. I, I personally, I do too. But you know, it's going to happen when it happens, and that's it's gonna, how it's going to have to be, I guess. Yeah. So, because you've got an amazing life, and you've had so many kind of different bits in there. I mean, if you were able to have told your sort of, I don't know, sixteen or eighteen-year-old some advice or some little kind of like, oh, some wisdom, I just wondered what you would have kind of wanted to whisper in their ear. Hmm. Yeah, well, so many things. It's hard to know which one to say first, you know. Um, slow down and enjoy every last moment of your childhood that you can because it's going to be over before you know it and you're just going to want to go back there so bad when you are faced with the harsh reality of the adult world, you know. You know, we're raised all through our childhood to, you know, uh, be ready for adulthood by a certain age and you know everyone thinks okay that day's come now i'm an adult and it's like well on paper you are but now you have to kind of get some adult experience and this is what they kind of leave out you know what i mean so people are in a hurry to do something that there really should be no hurry to do you know because your childhood is such a a, a small percentage of your existence as it is anyways you know i look at my own kid and i just think wow you know get that iphone away from him because he's going <laughs> to spend his entire adult life you know dealing with this shit why do i have to fucking hand him an ipad every time you know i need to do what you know i'm just not going to do that right so um yeah i think don't be in a hurry to to grow up and and, and thrust yourself into this world you're going to spend the rest of your life in <laughs> yes well i suppose what normally happens from talking to bands or musicians or bands is that you know, there's a sort of a, a well, not a fantasy, but, you know, you're in that world of, you know, being this group mm. of people that, you know, it's like a bit of a weird marriage, isn't it, sometimes? Yeah. You know, the honeymoon, the, the kind of relationship, and then the slightly, and it's often when the band finishes or some major thing happens that that's that kind of, the growth period is quite extraordinary. And, you know, lessons, there's so many lessons to be learned from being in a band. And that's where people kind of you know they either play the victim and, and sort of not taking responsibility yeah I hear, I hear way too much of that i hear way too much of that shit oh if only the record company hadn't ripped me off it's like oh what you're really saying is if you only you hadn't have been so naive and <laughs> so short-sighted and unknowledgeable of what situation you were in so sure it's all well and good to blame the big bad record company but there was nothing stopping you from going to school and figuring out what the fuck was actually going on right yeah. so <laughs> That's reality, the way I see it. Yes. So many people moaning about, you know, how they got thrown under the bus by their label or whatever. And Mick Harvey, who's a mate of mine through the Triffids shows, we've had this discussion about how we agreed that there's no, not really, that the idea of what we agreed on was that there's not really such a thing as underrated. Underrated is this thing that's projected onto things. You know, if you even can mention something as being, eligible to call it underrated odds are it was rated by someone at some point in the first place otherwise you wouldn't be talking about how underrated it is everyone has makes their own runnings everyone has their fair shake if you got your record out on a label hey man what happens from that point is up to you not up to them 
And that's the mistake people make is they just want everyone to do everything for them. They're like, well, I'm the rock star. That's got to be good enough. No, it's not. That's you just, in fact, you're going to distract yourself by thinking that you got to get over that. And you just got to be like, I'm just a guy trying to work this out man, <laughs> and, not, and not make it suck and not make it a disillusioning experience. That makes me want to sell all my guitars and records and go be a fucking plumber or whatever. So, you know, how do I do this? And, keep my own sense of integrity intact, look myself in the mirror, you know, and not feel like some idiot, you know, trying yes. to play, something, jump through some doggy hoop, you know, do the little doggy dance, go on <laughs> X factor. That's basically what it is. It's this X factor mindset. And that's not what motivates me. That's not the logic I'm operating on. That's not where I'm at with things, you know, despite I see that's where a lot of other people are at with things and that's their choice. That's fine. If that's how they understand it. Who am I to stop them, right? <laughs> well, well, absolutely. But I think it's also that moment where the relationship sometimes doesn't quite last and everyone needs to go their own way. So often it's that kind of, that's sure. the kind of another growing up moment, isn't it? Absolutely. Kind of... And that's, that's back to like, you know, leaving the BJM the first time. You know, I was a kid, you know. I had no reason to, to think that there was no reason to not just sign some record deal. Everyone else was fucking doing it. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, as far down the track with understanding how these things worked as Anton, even at that time was, you know, so I have to say, you know, even though at the time, you know, the decisions he would make would frustrate Travis and I looking back, I really admire him for making those decisions. I didn't see it. I didn't see what he saw. And now it's so clear to me. Yeah. You know, well, it's, so there you go. Absolutely. And I, you know, and at the same time, you know, it's different for each member of a band at what, stage of their life they're at and where their That's experiences right. are so it's it's you know I, I know sometimes people are a bit unfriendly or sort of saying about David Bowie the way he I wouldn't say he used musicians but it's like yeah but you were but you're if you're David Bowie you're the one who's having to come up with the ideas sometimes and you're the sure. one you know no one's really looking at Woody Woodmancy and saying Woody when are you going to do the next album you know it, you know it's like I mean they, they all played a part you know but it was kind of the pressure that people are under and, can be... And you wouldn't even be looking at Woody Woodmancy unless he was playing with David Bowie. So the only reason he's even a topic is because of who made him. It wasn't, like he, it wasn't like he was playing with someone else who was going to make him in that way. And that's nothing against him. He's great. But that's the reality of the situation. You know, so Bowie provides these people a platform. So it's like, okay, you're using them, but now, you know, the only reason that's relevant is and the only reason I know who you are is because of him. So maybe you used him to get a name in the first place, depending on where you're sitting at the table, right? How are you going to see it? You know, it's like, what gives you your value to begin with? Yeah. And do you, <laughs> I mean, and when, and when you sort of look back at, you know, those kind of bits of your career, are there moments that you think, God, I'm so pleased with that? That was a kind of a golden period. Hmm. Well, nothing's coming to mind immediately. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, I have to say, like, I'm just so grateful to not be dead and, you know, to be, you know, not, I'm not a speed freak or a heroin addict or an alcoholic. I'm so glad about that. You know, for all, the, for all my shortcomings in life, at least I fucking managed to avoid that shit. <laughs> and, um, I don't have a million lousy tattoos that I regret or anything like that, you know, <laughs> so I'm pretty much just me. And that's, you know, pretty important for me, you know, to just stay grounded and just have a, a strong sense of just 
being the same person I've always ever been, you know, I still feel like the same dumb, you know, 14 year old kid, you know, stoked to read the melody maker about the Jesus and Mary chains new single, you know, like that's, I'm still happy. I'm so happy to just be that same guy, <laughs> you know, only older, whether or not I did this or that with whoever you heard of, you know, that's my personal experience. You know, it's, it's not, it's not really anything to, you know, I don't, that's all it is you know it's it's my thing it's there it's something i share with my friends and yeah. if it means something to other people then thank goodness for that but you can't really kind of go into it with that and as a as the agenda or goal i think that's because that's kind of something disingenuous about that you i know? could kind of i mean would your younger self be amazed at seeing the older self and and would that also I just wondered, as, as we sort of start to develop more kind of experience, mainly because we're still not dead, which is good, do you sort mm. of kind of look at, you know, the people around you that you kind of started the scene with, thinking, you know, who's, who's kind of dropped out completely as in passed away? And sure. Sort of people yeah. who were like, well, yeah, that's not going quite so well. And then other people who were like, thinking, oh, they're quite, they've sort of got their kind of um, stuff together, so to speak. I just wondered how that feels to you when you suddenly think, God, when you're, when you're 18, 24, 25, you know, there isn't much to look at in the sense that we haven't got much experience, even though we've got that enthusiasm. That's right. But when you get to a different age, you're thinking, mm -hmm. bloody hell. So, so you suddenly have that history, you know, that band did that and then they, you know, did those albums split up, that band did that, they split up, those people are still doing that. I just wonder what it's like now that you've been in the kind of the scene a bit longer it's like i've it's like i've just got this collection of stuff the collection of experiences you know along along the, the path of my existence you know and, and i'm just grateful that it's all come together in such a natural manner you know i don't i don't have you know an agent or a manager trying to push for these things to happen i don't you know, nothing like that i'm i'm just a guy who likes music that's all i ever was it's all i'll ever be you know i I'm enthusiastic. I care about what people do. I have an appreciation for people's, you know, efforts and, and their, their beautiful, dreamy creations. You know, I'm, I'm a romantic and I recognize these qualities in people's work. And I see the strength in that and the bravery in that. And I think this is something we need in, you know, in modern popular culture, you know, we need to get rid of this X factor brain brainwash bullshit and get back to, you know, people really, um, aiming for something way more beyond that <laughs> <laughs> yes know? absolutely revolutionary spirit like come on you know what the fuck <laughs> What's, yeah. what happened there what's you know how did we get off of that right <laughs> you know this is true this is true X factor that's how we got off of that basically you know yes that's a weird so, world isn't it for us people yeah we're well, just to put it in a cheap you know answer that's that's basically your cheap one word answer x factor right two words sorry well i suppose i mean just on that last point we shouldn't you know it's a bit of a sad thing to leave but what i suppose what i'm always amazed is with people who are so emotional they go if i don't win this then my career's over and you're thinking how did why how did that happen why don't you just say well it doesn't matter i'm still going to keep doing what i'm doing it's like they've, they've literally got i win because if that's where they were coming from they wouldn't be on x factor Yes, but it's don't you find it a bit strange when you think, well, you're just going to give up because you don't win this competition because those judges don't like you? you or... know, I think it's just as well. I think if that's all it takes for you to give up, then by all means do it and like leave room for someone who's not going to give up. Leave room for the real deal. If you're not, because that's not you. If if you're, oh, I failed, done, bye. 
you know, and that's how I feel about a lot of these guys I ran into who were on those major contracts I was talking about in the late eighties and early nineties. And then when, when their band didn't become the next U2, they went and became, you know, uh, carpenters or they went and became, you know, whatever foreman or, you know, they got in, you know, some other job and then they sold their instrument and they sold their drum kit, whatever. And then they're sort of bitter about it all, you know, and, Oh, I don't play music anymore. No, I'm a fucking, you know, I pour concrete, whatever. Okay, great. Well, you don't have to be an asshole about it. Sorry. Maybe it's just as well. You don't fucking play music anymore. You know? <laughs> right. Maybe I don't want to hear music by a guy who should be pouring concrete instead. Maybe you should just be pouring concrete instead. <laughs> since you got such a lousy attitude you're not an artist you're just a guy who wanted to quote unquote make it you know so what you don't have your limousine and you don't have your bimbo and you don't have your cle everything making your cliche uh idea of success come to life for you so you failed okay see you later failure <laughs> <laughs> but that's what you were after you know and that's why i, I call bullshit on a lot of those kind of you know sort of uh brit poppy you know manchester -y kind of thing it's like you know okay you got a bowl cut and a stripy shirt but you want to be in a limo with a bimbo and a bottle of jack daniels so how are you any different than some heavy metal band on the sunset strip your haircut that's it <laughs> because if you could play guitar like that guy in the la sunset strip band you would because you want the same thing he wants <laughs> your end game is his end game you're just taking a different haircut to get there <laughs> Excellent. I like that. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my thing. It's like, I'm not into that. I'm just, I'm not, I don't care about any of that stuff. I care about peace and quiet, it's, you know, normal shit. Just like hanging out with kids, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't really, I don't feel a need to be what people call a rock star per se. That doesn't, it's kind of embarrassing. In fact, I try to avoid telling people what it is I actually do because I know that they're just going to turn that into something other than what it is and judge it as something other as something it is not. And so it's not even worth talking about. You know, people say, what do you do? I say, oh, what do you do? <laughs> Sidestep the whole thing. Like, let's not even go there. Yeah, that's, an, that's a terrible question to ask anybody. Actually. Well, that's right. And, I, and, I, and I, it's not uncommon for me to say that as well. <laughs> Who no, cares? No. Who cares if someone does? Me and a will joke. Oh, oh, what do I do? What does a sparrow do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of just on that point, I just realized they're already going to make so many assumptions on what your yes. answer is. And you're thinking, so if I say this, you're going to take this. Uh, you're it's gonna... loaded with whatever you're yeah, going to project on. So if this. I say the right thing, you might be nice. But if I don't say the right thing, you're just going to walk away. Like, actually, this friendship isn't really going to go anywhere. So let's not. And that's it. when someone says, oh, that guy's got an attitude. He's a real asshole. He's really up himself. And it's like, well, maybe he's not. Maybe it's just the way you fucking had to respond to him, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know. It's a good one. Anyway, look. Thank you. Yeah. That's been amazing. Well, thank you, Rick, for this. Is that, do I call you Rick? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's fine. That's yeah. cool. Okay. And um, yeah. And when I put this out, I can always send you a link and you can always, I don't know, use it. But um, yeah. Okay. That, that's, that's fine. But you know, I, you know, but look, it's brilliant. And I'm, I'm sort of pleased you've done some, some work with Paul because frankly, you know, some of the stuff he's done is amazing. So, um, oh, I'm really, we're all pretty excited about the music we've recorded. The, the songs are great. And, you know, everyone's going to be happy. I think people are going to hear that say wow this was worth waiting for oh i'm really pleased anyway and it's great on. you worked with henry as well which is great no. he's lovely yeah he's super cool he is so cool anyway yeah. look have a lovely day and thanks you again too. for your time thank you take care see you, you too. Bye. 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 and that 
dear listener, is how you end a conversation interview. There you have it. A big thank you for Ricky for giving me the time for that interview. This has been The C86 Show. I'm David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can. I know, I sound desperate now. Uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. And also all these uh, interviews, let's face it, conversations, <laughs> have been archived. You can find those on uh, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just do C86 Show. It's all there and much, much more. There's seriously much more because there's lots on David Bowie and he wasn't part of the indie scene. Anyway, look, I'm going to go now. Have a great week. Stay safe.